The Bible reading this morning comes from Esther, and it's Esther chapter 1, the whole chapter. Queen Vashti deposed. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendour and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days, in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden and hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple materials to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave the banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahaman, Bisthar, Harbana, Bigthar, Abakthar, Zethar and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Here we go again. <laughs> Karshena, Shethar, Admathar, Tarshish, Merez, Marsena and Memekin, the seven nobles of Persia and Media, who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memekam replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and the Median women of the nobility who have heard about the Queen's conduct will respond to all the King's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the King, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, 
that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his, his own household. Friends, let's bow in prayer. Father, we want to thank you for uh, drawing us together this morning, uh, here physically and uh, in our homes. Father, we pray that uh, you would now free us from all those thoughts and things which would distract us and help us to focus on you, focus on what you're saying to us in your word, uh, that by your spirit that we might grow in our understanding and that we might be changed to be more the people you would have us be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I used to work in the head office of a major international company uh, in Sydney, and I found myself one day in the elevator with uh, two other employees. Uh, one was a young lady, and the other one was a senior executive, the director of finance of the company. After the young lady left the elevator, the senior executive shared with me his lustful thoughts about the young woman. I guess uh, that uh, I'm not sure how much my refusal to join with him uh, in this uh, would have embarrassed him, but I can say that the remainder of the elevator journey was a little bit uncomfortable. And I remember this very clearly uh, because there was this great power differential between myself as the most junior accountant in the company and one of the most senior executives. And I'm sure that my career prospects were not enhanced uh, by not joining in with him uh, in this uh, unfortunately all too common uh, attitude towards women. It was one of those moments in daily life where as Christians we ought to be different and we ought not to blend in with the world around us. But it's not just the uh, moments of temptation of a moral nature that uh, really we need to be thinking about because as Christians uh, we should be uh, having values and we should have, be having goals in life that set us apart from the world around us, from the godlessness of the world around us. I wonder, do you sometimes feel uncomfortable as a Christian uh, in, the, uh, uh, in, in the situations of life that you find yourself in? Uh, do you sometimes find that you don't quite fit in, that you don't quite belong? Now, that should not surprise us if we feel that way, because it's actually what the Bible teaches us to expect. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, Christians are described as being aliens and strangers in the world 
living amongst pagans. And it's with those kind of issues in mind that today we enter into a world which on the one hand is very uh, different from the world in which we live uh, and yet on the other hand is very much the same as we commence this uh, short series on the uh, very fascinating book of Esther in the Old Testament. And uh, if you care to open that up in uh, Esther, we're going to be looking at chapters 1 and 2, it's fascinating in many ways, not the least being because rather than being set in Israel, uh, that we are transported into the royal court of the empire of Persia, where in uh, Esther chapter 1, we enter a scene of luxurious opulence. Now, the year is uh, 482 BC, and uh, Persia had become the greatest empire that the world had ever known. Uh, we see this if you have a look at verse 1, that the empire is described as, as extending from, from India uh, through to Kush. Uh, in terms of modern political geography, uh, that means uh, from the Indus Valley, uh, which is essentially modern-day Pakistan, uh, through to northern Sudan in, in Africa, and everything in between. Uh, we know the date in which the book is set, uh, because in verse 3, it is during the third year of the reign of King Xerxes. Now, King Xerxes was the grandson of uh, King Cyrus, who 57 years earlier, as the king of Persia, had conquered the great Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar. And now, over this vast empire, uh, rules Xerxes, who in verses 1 through to 12 wants to show off his greatness. Have a look at just uh, verse 4, for example, where we're told uh, this uh, it takes place in the palace grounds, uh, that for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendour and the glory of his majesty. Now, this is something which kings uh, like to do, don't they? They like to build grand palaces and fill them up with fantastic statues and works of art and so on in order to uh, show off to others how fantastic they are. This was like an expo. It went on for six months, 180 days. This was six months of boasting, which was then followed by a week-long banquet held in the palace garden. Uh, the palace garden. Imagine it, with all of its exquisite uh, wall hangings with its couches that are described as being made from gold and silver. You could lounge back on the couch and eat your food lying on gold and silver and with uh, pavers which, well, you're not likely to be able to pick up at Bunnings. Um, porphyry and marble and this is luxurious opulence. There were two banquets happening at the same time. One for the women, which was hosted by the Queen, and this one for the men. And what do men do when they get together to party? Well, let's have a look at verses 7 through to 8, shall we? Wine was served in goblets of gold, 
each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink without restrictions, for the king had instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. There you go, folks. All you can drink for free every night and day for a week. Even King Xerxes got drunk. Uh, or as uh, verse 10 puts it a little bit more nicely, quote, was high in spirits from the wine. But in his alcohol fueled foolishness, he wants to show off not just his wealth, but also his wife. As in verse 10, Queen Vashti is commanded to leave the party that she's throwing in order to come to the king and to his party so that the men would delight in her as an object of lust. For she was, in verse 11, lovely to look at. However, things didn't go according to his plan because his wife, Queen Vashti, said no. She refused to come. And the king burned with anger. Now, you've got to think, well, heck, why would he be so surprised that the queen would not come and do that for him? I mean, that was such a degrading thing that he was requiring her to do. Why would, she, why would he be surprised? Well, because in Persia, the authority of the king was absolute. And now he's got a problem. Because the queen has publicly disobeyed him and therefore has reduced his authority for everyone at this party, all of the men, including the, the elite from all across the empire, all of the people had just seen that the great king who ruled the world cannot even rule his own wife. Something had to be done. And so in uh, verses 13 through to 21, his uh, legal team uh, gathered around and they came up with an idea, uh, an idea which did involve uh, punishing the queen whilst not making the king look petty. They turned the issue into a potential empire-wide catastrophe. Check it out, verse 16. Then Mamukin, it's one of the legal advisers, replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, quote, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all of the nobles and the peoples of all of the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti, to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the Queen's conduct will respond to the King's nobles the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. There you go. An all-male group of advisers has agreed unanimously that the world as they knew it would be different. There would be no end of disrespect and discord throughout the entire empire. 
See, this is, this is just not about saving the king's face. This is about saving the social fabric of the empire. And so Queen Vashti is to be replaced, presumably by a more obedient wife. And in verse 22, a royal edict is dispatched throughout the empire proclaiming, quote, that every man should be ruler over his own household. Now, can you imagine, you know, people in the far-flung parts of the empire, you know, down there in Pakistan and up in northern Sudan, receiving this edict and scratching their heads and thinking, what on earth is all this about? What's going on here? And also, it's not a great idea to make big decisions, especially about marriage relationships, when you're upset, when you're upset, and when you're drunk. Especially if you're the king of Persia. Because under Persian law, as we see, if you can look at verse 19, under what's called the law of the Medes and the Persians, any law which carries the royal seal, like this one, this decree to get rid of Queen Vashti and, you know, make every man the ruler of his own house, any rule that, uh, any law that carries the royal seal cannot ever be reversed. It's unchangeable in Persian law. Which may shed some light on chapter 2, verse 1, uh, where it's described that King Xerxes is now, he's kind of calmed down, he's not angry anymore, and he starts to think about Vashti, about what she did and about how he responded. And perhaps he even regrets what he did because now he doesn't have a wife and he can't take her back. So therefore, a search now begins for a new queen. Um, now, there's that dreadful show on television called the, the Bachelor. Now, I understand that this is how it works. I've never actually watched it. We're a, a uh, presumably a, a handsome uh, and eligible man is given this uh, pool of attractive women uh, to date and to date simultaneously as part of a competition and uh, from whom, from amongst that pool, uh, he is supposed to hopefully selects one to be his wife. I think there's also a kind of a reverse show as well where they've got a girl that's with a pool of men and so on. It's dreadful stuff. It's appalling. Uh, what happens in Esther chapter 2 makes The Bachelor seem lame by comparison. Uh, in chapter 2, the most attractive young women of, uh, of the empire throughout the known world were selected and they were brought to the capital city. It's, the city is called Susa. Uh, they're brought to the king's harem for him eventually to choose a wife. And the process was as follows. First of all, each of these young women would undergo one full year of beauty treatments. What that involves, well, it's explained a bit there, but one full year. Imagine that. And then secondly, after that one full year of 
beauty treatments, uh, there is a roster that's drawn up and each woman, each woman gets to spend one night in bed with the king. This is a dreadful, uh, appalling situation you know, for, for these young women who were taken from their families and from their communities and uh, with very little choice in the matter. And, uh, of course, some of them may have, you know, been attracted to the idea of perhaps being selected to become queen, but the odds were against that because there were literally hundreds of women. Some have estimated up to 1,400, possibly 1,400 women involved in this. Uh, the fact is that it took uh, several years of one-night stands before a young Jewish woman named Esther was rostered to join the king in his bed. She was Jewish, but she did not come from Judea. No, she actually came from Susa, the very city where the king was based. Now have a look at verse 5. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa, the citadel is the fortified part of the city, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father or mother. This young woman was also known as Esther. Uh, she had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Uh, Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Uh, friends, uh, in all of the um, pagan revelry and the ungodliness of these two chapters, uh, these verses here are absolutely critical. 118 years earlier, uh, before Esther had been summoned to the king's bedroom, Judah had been defeated by the Babylonians. And its king, King Jehoiakim, uh, along with many of Judah's nobility, had been taken captive and had been taken into exile in Babylon. It was the beginning of the, the Babylonian exile. And Mordecai's family were amongst those first, that first group of exiles, which suggests that Mordecai may have come from uh, uh, upper-class stock. In 539 BC, the grandfather of Xerxes, King Cyrus, had allowed the Jews to return home from the lands where they'd been exiled, uh, home to Jerusalem, in order to rebuild Jerusalem and in order to rebuild the temple. But not all of the Jews returned home. Some of them stayed in the lands uh, into which their families had been exiled. The family of Mordecai and Esther were among the Jews who had decided not to return to Jerusalem, who had decided to remain in Persia. However, 
God had not deserted his people who were still living amongst the pagans. Now, one of the uh, striking features about the book of Esther is that God is not mentioned, not even once. Uh, Some people have wondered, well, why then is the book of Esther in the Bible? He's not mentioned once. And yet, behind the scenes, God's unseen hand is very, very much at work to protect his chosen people, not just in the capital city, Susa, but indeed throughout the world. For in chapter 2, verse 17, the pagan king now selects his new queen, who he does not know is actually one of God's people, as Esther is crowned queen of the great Persian Empire. God's sovereign hand. But that's not all. Uh, What about her older cousin, the man Mordecai? Well, on three occasions, uh, commencing firstly at chapter 2, verse 19, uh, on three occasions throughout the book of Vesta, Mordecai is described as sitting at the king's gate. Now, what does that mean? Well, maybe he just liked to sit there. That's a possibility. However, in the ancient world, the gate was the place where, uh, of the court. It was the place where judgments were made in legal cases. Uh, and the, the, ju- the, the person before the court would stand to present their case whilst the judge would sit. Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate maybe a way of saying that he was actually a judge. Perhaps Esther had used her royal influence to have him appointed to that position. A position which enabled him to overhear two royal officers having a conversation about how they were going to assassinate the king. Information which Mordecai, as a faithful person, passed on. You see, friends, as God's people uh, living in a pagan culture, uh, you and I, we need to be faithful citizens. Uh, We need to be people who uh, honour those who are in leadership, those who are in government, without compromising our faith. Um, In uh, the book of Jeremiah... Uh, when the exiles first went into Babylon, Jeremiah wrote to the exiles and he said to them that they were to seek the welfare of the city in which they were living. Like Mordecai, who in chapter 2, verse 22, reported the plot to Esther, who passed the information on, there was an investigation that was carried out, the men were found to be guilty of plotting uh, to assassinate the king, the men were, uh, were then executed and the record of this was, uh, uh, was, was put into the, uh, the king's royal records. That is, Esther, a young Jewish girl, is now queen of Persia and Mordecai, a Jewish man, 
is owed a favour by the king. The scene is now set. And it's a set, it's a scene of God's people living amongst those who do not know God. And God's people, uh, throughout the book, as we'll see next week, come under threat. As King Xerxes is advised by one of his senior officials of a group of people who are living in the land, who are different from everyone else and who should not be tolerated. It becomes a threat which at the human level jeopardises the very existence of God's people throughout the world. And so where is God? In the book of Esther, his name is hidden. And yet so too is his sovereign hand. For as a result of this pagan revelry of the Persian court, this young Jewish woman is now the king's wife. Uh, Mordecai is owed a favour by the king. So that the pieces are now in place by which God would save and preserve his people just as he does for us as well. For we too live as God's people in a pagan land where we are faced with challenges and with choices. On the one hand, we can choose to to be accepted by man. We can choose to to blend in and to absorb the uh, godless values of the world around us. Uh, believing the lie that somehow that would be better than living God's way. Or we can learn the lesson not just from Esther, but the lesson from the gospel itself. That when things, uh, being different seems hard, when being different seems risky, that God is still with us, that we are not alone. How do we know that? Well, because the pieces have already been put in place. Jesus has died for our sins. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And as we've seen in John chapter 17 last week, that uh, God has sent his spirit. Remember what Jesus prayed? He said, Father, I do not pray that you would take them out of the world, but rather that you would protect them from the evil one. Earlier on, he'd uh, reminded his, taught his disciples of how he was leaving them, but they would not be alone because God would be present in and amongst them through his spirit. His spirit who protects us. Being godly uh, may not make us popular and successful, But as we keep on trusting in Christ, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God will keep us strong. God will take care of you until the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the banquet which we get to enjoy is not one week of drunken revelry, but rather praise which is joyful for all of eternity. Let's pray. 
Father, uh, we want to thank you that uh, you are always at work uh, for our good, uh, the good of those who love you. Uh, even sometimes when it seems a little bit less obvious to us, we know that you have not left us, that you are still sovereign, that you are looking after us and that you will bring to completion uh, what you have begun in our lives. And so, Father, we pray that we would be empowered to resist uh, the temptation to just become part of the world, but that we would uh, engage with our world, but we would stand firmly uh, engaged in our obedience to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.